Blog Talk Radio. March 29th, 2017 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard. And this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism uniquely upholds the right to the pursuit of your own happiness. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff. And if you go over to the blog at don'tletitgo.com today, you will see the title of today's show is If the Schism Fits, Wear It. Of course, you know the saying that that derives from, and uh, typically that saying, if the shoe fits where you know where it is, meant to be derogatory in some way. But as it'll come out as I go through, if you look at the examples, you'll probably guess that I don't mean it in a derogatory way. That if you are a person who is instigating a schism. You may indeed be doing it for good reasons. We're going to talk about two different schisms today. It happens to be that one of them is prominent in the news, and that is the GOP schism. The House Freedom Caucus has been blamed for defeating Obamacare light, you know, the bill that Paul Ryan and our dear president, Donald Trump, tried to voiced upon the American people as a so-called substitute for Obamacare. That has been defeated. What's going to actually happen in the future is unclear. But what we do know is that something called the House Freedom Caucus was blamed, and I think rightly, based on what I've read, for the defeat of this piece of legislation. In effect, there's a schism within the Republican Party. And as we'll see, there is a schism within the schism. There's a division among House Freedom Caucus members about how to proceed from here. So we'll take a look at that. And then the other thing that you'll see prominently in the program notes that's related to the title of the show is this old schism and objectivism, this idea of whether or not objectivism is an open system or is it closed? What is it that we will call objectivism is, is really the, the question. So if you're interested in either of these issues and you want to talk about it, or maybe you're interested about both, you can call in to talk to me. The number at which to do so is 760-888-5817. Again, that's 760-888-5817. And at the appropriate time that I am going to take callers, what you'll want to do is press the one button. That's what Blog Talk Radio prompts, uh, excuse me, prompts you. Plomps? Is that a word? Uh, prompts you to do so that you can tell me that you actually want to participate and not just listen on the line. So feel free to do 
that. Cobra Pilot in the chat room says, good riddance to the AHCA, so-called Obamacare light. Yeah, I I would say good riddance as well. I don't think that it was going to do very much. Uh, I could take these articles that I have on Obamacare in all kinds of different orders if I wanted to. But the thing that struck me as I was just looking at some of these before the show started is this. So, you mean, what, what is the latest? The latest is that the repeal of Obamacare is back on the agenda for Republicans. And that's one article that I have for you guys over from the New York Times. Again, go to don'tletitgo.com if you want to see program notes for today's show. They're saying, under extreme pressure from conservative activists, House Republican leaders and the White House have restarted negotiations on legislation to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Now, mind you, they're not in a big rush. It's no big deal. It's not very urgent to them to get to this. It says, oh, it could take weeks. You know, efforts to revive the legislation could take weeks because Congress is moving forward with a full plate of other time-consuming issues, you know, because there are things other than this that are more important. Who was campaigning on this? You know, I was listening to Yaron Brooks' show the other day, and he gave the big rant, so I'm not going to redo the whole rant that he gave. But these guys campaigned on this, that, you know, if you finally gave them the White House and the House and the Senate, that they were going to finally repeal and replace Obamacare. And, you know, as we heard last Friday, as of last Friday at least, Paul Ryan is telling us that we're going to be living with Obamacare for the foreseeable future, uh, Democrats declaring victory and all this kind of stuff. And now they're saying, okay, well, you know, maybe, maybe we can be bothered to actually fulfill the campaign promise that we made, the reason that they are all elected. Maybe we can do it. But, you know, we've got these other things, these other priorities. Senate Republicans, says this New York Times article, they have other priorities at the moment. Nonetheless, Speaker Paul Ryan, because he knows his career is all for naught if he doesn't do it, he vowed to renew efforts to repeal the law despite last week's crushing setback when the House Republicans tossed aside a repeal bill because they lacked the votes to pass it. And they say just days after President Trump said he was moving on to other issues, senior administration officials said that they still hoped to score the kind of big legislative victory that has so far eluded the White House. It's all about a legislative victory. That's it, right? You know, it's winning. It's all about winning. Is Trump going to win? Is he going to put his name on something? Is he going to remake something that Obama had other than via executive order? Vice President Mike Pence was dispatched to Capitol Hill on Tuesday for lunchtime talks. Yeah, you know, Trump can't be bothered with it. Although I was reading in another article that Trump was actually trying to help, you know, secure some of the votes for the last piece. Here's something that's very revealing, though, and this is why I actually took up this article first, right? They're talking about whether they're going to be able to get all the different votes and stuff like this. And then, let's see here. Let me find it. Oh, yeah, here it is. So when they're talking about if they're going to make a new deal, right, what's going to be in it? Mr. Ryan declined to say what's going to be in it. There's not going to, you know, he's not even sketching any schedule for action. 
but Congress needs to act. Why? Because, of course, all the insurance companies are trying to plan for the 2018 healthcare plans because, you know, our contracts with our health insurers are for one year at a time. And if the health insurance companies could know what law is actually going to affect them, then they can craft their so-called offers to us accordingly. Uh, The new talks, which quietly began this week, involved Stephen Bannon and members of two Republican factions that helped sink the bill last week, the Hard Right Freedom Caucus and the more centrist Tuesday group. I haven't heard of the Tuesday group. Obviously, we've heard of the Freedom Caucus. They're the ones who have been blamed. But then listen to this. And this this is the paragraph of this piece. It's just a, a sentence, really. One sentence of this urgency of getting rid of Obamacare. This is again from the New York Times piece. Any deal that they come, you know, they're going to make, any deal would have to overcome significant differences about what? About how to rework a law that affects about one-fifth of the American economy. One-fifth of the American economy. If you recall, I recall this. I mean, everybody in America is supposed to have really short memories. When they were debating Obamacare, they were talking about health care being one-sixth of the American economy. If Obamacare has been such a boon, such a victory over health care expenses, how is it that when they were discussing Obamacare passage, it was one-sixth of the American economy that we're talking about? And now we're talking about, quote, about one-fifth. And then as a friend of mine on Facebook reminded me when I was posting this just a little while ago, at the time when they were, you know, they had the um, what a, you know contract for America and everything with Newt Gingrich and all those guys in the Congress back in the 90s, it was to defeat Hillary Care. And at that time, they were talking about how health care was one-seventh the American economy. So as a fraction of our economy... The expenditures on health care have steadily increased. What you would expect is that at the very least it would just remain steady, right? You know, technology and healthcare is something that benefits from technology. Technology should make things less expensive over time. But what happens in the healthcare industry at the same time that existing treatments would become less expensive, right? Thanks to improvements in technology there's always going to be innovation in new treatments. So you wouldn't expect necessarily that there's always going to be a steady drop in the fraction of the economy. But think about this. Do you think that any normal healthy person should be spending one-fifth of their household budget on health care? No, right? I mean, healthcare is something you're supposed to be using infrequently. Now, there are people who do have chronic conditions and they do have to spend significant portions of the budget, but this should not be the norm. So, you know, if you're just taking the whole country as an average and you're taking the fact that we've got one fifth of our GDP going to healthcare, that means as a nation, we're just all very sick people. Or do we have a very sick healthcare system and it's sick due to the intervention in the economy? To me, this is alarming. I mean, just to, to see this, that, and I don't think the New York Times knows how revealing this is that they stuck it in their article, right? It, it affects about one fifth of the American economy now. That's 
what is devoted to health care. And that's a problem. That's a problem. What would you expect? In the chat room, we've got people talking, I think, about the Republicans. They're so pathetic. They're losers and everything else. They're not just pathetic. They are betrayers, right? They are betrayers, first of all, of their promises. Um, You know, how many times did they pass a repeal bill when they did not have a Republican in the White House? And now they have a Republican in the White House. And they're not in any big hurry to pass it, but, you know, what was it? It's like 60 different times or something is what your own said on his show the other day. So this is crazy stuff. And, and the idea that they're going to put forth one piece of legislation and then when they can't get it through, they're just going to throw their hands up in the air and just say, okay, I guess we're going to live with Obamacare and not actually try to work for something, at least for a longer period of time. Jerome pointed out that the Democrats, whatever you think of them, worked for 13 months to pass Obamacare. And these guys work for what? Maybe two. And that's it. Chris in the chat room says that Republicans are morally worse than the commiecrats because they claim to be what they're not. Yeah, they claim to be in favor of limited government. They claim, I mean, one of their claims to fame was that none of them supported Obamacare. And now, very few of them actually want to really repeal it. I think the ones who are, you know, fighting for a true meaningful repeal are the ones in the Freedom Caucus. And not all of them are actually loyal to it. They can be, quote, peeled off from their group, as, as we're going to see. John in the chat room says the one-fifth would include the medical schools. Uh, I've got someone who just did a little pop-up. Are you taking calls? Yeah, I'll take calls when I take calls. I see calls on, on the chat board. Um, if you want to tell me in your little pop-up what it is that you're calling about, that'll help me a lot more decide when I want to take the call. Right now I'm talking about the Republicans. So let me know if you are on the line wanting to talk about the Republicans and Obamacare because that's that's what we're talking about now. Then we're going to get to the other. Um, I'm not even sure what the handle is, so that's kind of interesting. Um, Yes, the the Obamacare. Okay, so if you want to talk about that, we can go ahead and talk about that. Let me go ahead. New caller. Hi, what's your name? Hi, what's your name? Hey there, that's Jaza. What's happening? What is your name? My name is Jaza. Jaza. Okay, now you're going to have to turn yeah. down your audio in the background because I'm hearing feedback. Okay, so I'll wait two seconds. Sure. Yes, I would like to just mention that I've noticed I, I'm not from the US, I am in the UK, but okay. I have noticed that the politics in this country today is very, very crazy. And I'm, only, I'm not going to kind of sugarcoat this, but I think. I'm not going to pretend I know a lot about American politics, but from over the years and understanding how it works, it's just the same as in the United Kingdom. I think that most politicians, and they really are demons, it's most of them. Let's be realistic. Because I think... They are, they no are what? what? I'm sorry, you cut out for a second. You said most... Thing, you, that's going me. on. Hello? And I think that Hello? 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 
Hello, I lost you back there at most politicians are. I didn't hear what you said they were. Sorry, I just said that most politicians are really demons in suits, to be absolutely honest with you. And okay. I feel as if, no, I just feel as if that the politicians today, they really are all going for the same thing. And it's just money, money, power and greed. I, I feel we don't mind if I use this reference in the UK that the new Prime Minister, Theresa May, all she cares about is money, power and greed. Now, what's happening in the poor people in the north of, of the United Kingdom is the exact same in the Republicans and the whole thing. They're just really making a fool of people and they're really kind of sucking the life out of society and it's all about money. And, I'm whole, and what I realise is this whole schism thing, is it, is it the same as jism? The whole schism thing is what? Is the whole schism thing the same as jism? I'm not sure what you mean, and I didn't understand the last word, probably because of the accent. Oh, sorry. It's like schism and jism. Like, jism over here is the same. It's like, it's known as just jibber-jabber, you know? Like, the whole, it's like, we never No, 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 no. So, so a, a schism is a division within a movement over a very contentious issue. So, for example, there's a schism within the Republican party right now, we've got the house freedom caucus and and some corresponding members in the Senate, you know, notably people like Ted Cruz and Rand Paul and Mike Lee, who actually seem to believe that the Republicans should stand for limited government. Whereas a lot of the Republicans don't seem to think that, you know, government, particularly in the healthcare legislation department, is Mm. very important anymore. That they'd much rather provide universal coverage, universal healthcare, than limit the government involvement in the economy. Crazy, isn't it? I know. I look at it and I say to myself, you know, I just really wish. I mean, coming from a very personal statement. Like I said, the, in, the United, in, the, in the United Kingdom, what happens when people talk about, you know, politics, uh, like politicians who talk, built, uh, sorry, lies? Um, what happens is we all say, yeah, that's it. There they go. They're talking jism again, jism, jism, jism. It's just the same as jibber jabber, you know? But I want to just say that it's absolutely crazy, you know? The jibber jazz or jism that they spat out from the schism, it's the same as the jism, you know? What, ha- what happens then is the fact that um, well, I just feel as if all politicians are so evil. They're only after money. And I think right. you should just get on a bus and go to Mars. What do you think? No, I mean, I, <laughs> I, 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 definitely, I definitely think you're right. And th- this is the thing. I mean, right now, I just saw a post the other day from Ted Cruz, and he talks about the fact that all of the richest districts in the entire country are, you know, constellations around Washington, D.C., the, and who, why is it? It's because all these politicians have gotten very wealthy because politicians, and I'm sure it's true in the UK, get to pick winners and losers in the economy, right? Um, they have so much control over every aspect of our lives and particularly over the production of any value in the economy yes. that they can single-handedly either make or destroy entire industries. And because they have that kind of power over us, they end up accruing a lot of personal wealth, right? Because they can do insider trading, you know, they create all this information that they can trade on. It's uh, it, it's getting really, really bad. And it looks like, you know, in the Republicans, it's just the same as with the Democrats. They have no intention of giving up government control over this huge fraction of the economy 
they would much rather, you know, just leave Obamacare in place. I mean, right now it's one-fifth of the economy. Maybe in another five, ten years it's going to be one-fourth. Imagine one-fourth of an economy spent on health care. I don't know what it is in, in yes. Great Britain. Do you know what it is there? What what portion of your yes. total economy you spent on yes, health care? Yeah, listen to this. This is, this is how bad it is, okay? Now, what happens in the, in the United Kingdom, th- there is such a thing as healthcare, but it's known as the NHS. Basically, it's the free healthcare thing, but basically people get shown the door, if you understand that, because if basically the only way to get ahead in the country is if you pay privately. So if I, and this may sound very sceptical, what I'm about to say, but what happens in the United Kingdom, there is so many cases where people... I talk about certain injuries. For instance, I was in for a spinal injury one time, and what happens in the next cubicle next to me, and no word of lie, I, and it was, and I, I'm not lying when I say this, please believe me. What happened was, the next gentleman in the cubicle, I was getting some stitches removed, and the gentleman next door to me um, kept shouting next door, oh, ouch, 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 oh my God, stop taking these stitches out my, you know what, I can have you a guess on that. But what happens is, this, uh, he, he shouted from the next cubicle at the top of his lungs and said, what the flaming fuck? This is killing me. The NHS are so poor. What is wrong with this? And, and I kept saying, oh, this is a bit silly. The guy's going crazy. He's shouting more jism, jasm, jibber, jabber. So what happened was I said, you know what? This guy's crazy. He's making everyone look, look insane. But at the same time, he's absolutely right. Do you know, it's just the way they treat people. When I went in and a, a, a nurse spoke to me like I was a complete criminal. And I didn't even do anything but ask for help. It's the same wow. again, same as politicians, the same with doctors, the same with nurses, the jism, jism, jabber, jism, 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 same thing. Well, uh, that's sobering, and I'm, I'm afraid to say that that's probably where we're headed. Um, I, th- I thank you for your call. I'm going to have to go ahead and, and go on with the, the rest of this, but... You know, there is something to schisms, though. I think it's different than just a lot of typical BS talk. And really what I'm, you know, the the theme of this show as it's going to emerge is that I think it's a good thing that the House Freedom Caucus did stand up and prevent this Obamacare light from being passed. Now, what happens from here on, I don't know. You know, if you look at 12 Angry Men in the movies, right, you know, you can bring people around, even a, a you know, a committed consistent minority might be able to bring people around to the right point of view. But I am wondering whether the House Freedom Caucus can actually achieve this. And then the question is, what is the right way to go? Do you leave Obamacare in place or is it better to you know, pass some sort of Obamacare light on the idea that it's going to make things better? I mean, what is Obamacare, right? This week in my Libertarian Theories of the Law class that I like to talk about during the show a lot we had read from von Mises, and von Mises gives a very convincing case about how any intervention into the economy causes problems that themselves seem to invite further intervention in the economy and more and more and more until essentially the only other stable equilibrium beside full laissez-faire capitalism is to go all the way to full socialism. That's where you're going. And you know, he, he demonstrated it in this one article that we had for two different types of government interventions. One of them was a price control where you controlled the price of some particular good or commodity, maybe, you know, housing, rent control or something. And then the second was wage control. 
And he demonstrated exactly what would happen in terms of the prices would lead to this, which would lead the government to step in and do that and go on and on and on, right? And all the steps by which you would just have more and more control taken by the government over that sector of the economy. And if there's sectors of the economy that the government hasn't taken over yet, the pressure is going to be on to go ahead and consume those as well until everything is socialized. What is Obamacare? Obamacare is this weird amalgamation constellation of a bunch of different interventions all at the same time, right? Now, imagine, here's all these Republicans, and, you know, they're there after von Mises has written, and Democrats too, whatever, they all are aware of these writings, where, you know, if there's an intervention in the economy, not only have you destroyed all the information that is contained in a free market price mechanism, right, which allows all of the goods and services to, you know, go to their, you know, flow to their highest and best use within the economy. Um, you allow the people who know the most about how to make use of certain goods and resources and labor and everything else. You're, they're the ones right there. They're making the decisions. They're making the decisions based on the market price. The market price subsumes within it the information from all the other things that are going on the, in the economy, the way that no central planning consciousness ever could, right? All of this is thrown aside when the government inserts force into the economy, when it intervenes. And von Mises will painstakingly show you, it's like, let's just take this one price control and let me show you how step-by-step step it's going to lead to a total government takeover of that sector of the economy, right? Now, somehow, the brilliant geniuses who decided that they think it's okay to keep a whole lot of Obamacare, right, they think oh, you can have all of these different interventions in the economy and, you know, somehow miraculously we're going to evade the laws of economics that show us that it's a disaster when you intervene. Why? Because we're going to have, you know, five different interventions coming from five different directions and we'll just kind of hope and pray and do a little incantation that maybe the laws of physics won't apply this time or something. It is bizarre. Obamacare is... I don't know, it, you know, it's like doing the cupping, you know, for, uh, they used to do, I guess, cupping as medical treatment or something. You're, you're hoping it's going to come out with a, a good effect when you have no reason to think that there's going to be a good effect from any of these different ones. But somehow you think if you put a whole bunch of di different interventions together that you're going to evade reality. It is just truly ridiculous. Now, Freedom Breeze in the chat room says, I keep thinking of what Ayn Rand said, it's earlier than we think. Yeah, we are seeing that it's earlier than we think. You know, again, these politicians are evading all of the information that economists can give you about the destructiveness of intervention in the economy. Now, why are they doing this? Why are they doing this? They're doing this because of fundamental ideas. And I have a, a student in my seminar who is committed to the idea that it is the government's job to provide health care for everyone, right? Health care is a necessity. It's the government's job to provide health care. So even though you tell him that intervention in the economy 
is going to destroy the entire healthcare system. It's going to ensure that less healthcare services overall are produced and it's going to be of lower quality. Even though von Mises can show you this distinctively because he can say, okay, you know, this is a regulation, this is a price control, this is a wage control. He can show you exactly step by step, right? All of the, how all these different interventions would play out. You don't know exactly, right? But, you know, there's always going to be these effects. And you, you know that when the government is coming in and it's using force, that it is destroying all the beautiful coordinating mechanisms in the free market. We know this. Nonetheless, that's not what matters to these people. Now, what matter, what may matter to politicians, as I was reading in the New York Times article, is you know scoring a legislative victory, getting the votes. Uh, but also, what matters is what they believe their moral duty is, and so many of them are unwilling to say that there is no moral duty to provide health care for your brother, right? Now, I don't mean your literal brother because you, know, you might have a family brother that you want to provide health care for it's in your interest to do so I'm talking about are you your brother's keeper are you your brother's keeper and so many politicians today believe that you are and you're not going to budge them from that fundamental idea and insofar as you can't budge them from that you can show them the horrible economic consequences you can show them what the New York Times has given us which is that now health care is one-fifth of the economy when it was one sixth before Obamacare was passed. You can show them this stuff. You can say it's ridiculous to spend 20% of a budget on average on healthcare. That's not what life as a human being is about, right? Life as a human being is not normally about spending one fifth of your life undergoing medical treatment, nor should it be spending one fifth of your money. So, um, but the point is, is that I don't know that they are going to be open to persuasion. So what do you think is better? Do you think given that you're not going to be able to repeal Obamacare in any meaningful way, that all you're going to do is you're going to get some kind of Trump care that is going to be different types of interventions and they're going to be hoping, again, to get away with defying the laws of physics, define the law of gravity, maybe just keep Obamacare in place and let it collapse? What's the solution? I've got Debbie on the line. I'm going to go ahead and grab the call. Hi, Debbie. How are you? Hi, Amy. I'm great. I have about five minutes, so I can't talk for long, but I just wanted to chime in um, sure. because you were talking about this, how the, the thing that's really getting the Republicans to, not, to, to be cowards and not follow through is this idea that you're your brother's keeper. And yeah. um, your own had, like, the most awesome – little like short phrase to capture that on a show a couple weeks ago i just want to repeat it you know reagan um says once the uh, the scariest words in the english language are i'm from the government and i'm here to help mm-hmm. and your own was talking about how this rally of altruism will always lead to statism and he said well if you are your brother you're your brother's keeper okay well i'm from the government and i'm here to help you keep your brother <laughs> and i just thought that was like the most the most clever phrase I've, I've heard in, in a very long time. It's like, it's so perfect. <laughs> well, and, it, and it's not I'm just that. It's, it, it's not just help you keep your brother. It's force you to keep your brother. Right, right. right. That's that's what the government does. So but yeah. it's like this perfect little encapsulation of what that 
Oh yeah, no, no, but that is that's that's the iconic phrase of of Reagan, and that's exactly what that these and you know these Republicans should be ashamed of themselves, right? Um, Yeah, yeah. They they really should, but it seems like they have absolutely no shame at all. You know, they just have no qualms about what they're doing. Is they're too busy. They're they're too busy on other things. They're 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 busy with the wall, as Jerome says. You know. If I were a Republican, I just I I don't know, like uh, I just have to go jump off a cliff or something. Like I I don't think that I could ever live with myself if I were one of those. I don't know how they even continue to exist. They're so pathetic and so contemptible. yeah, I don't know. They're, you know, Cra- uh, Craig, uh, I, Craig in the chat room, Craig yeah. in the chat room says politicians don't believe anything; they just want to be reelected. And I'm almost at that place now. I, I mean, I really am. And and I'll tell you, Debbie, before you go, one of the big disappointments for me this week was re- reading one of these articles on the strategy of the Freedom Caucus, and they're saying that both Rand Paul and Mike Lee were urging members of the Freedom Caucus to vote against any of the Obamacare light, whereas Ted Cruz came there and didn't tell them how they should vote. Wow. Now, that's yeah. really surprising. He was the most vocal and courageous opponent to Obamacare that I was aware of. Uh, so that's Disappointing. really confusing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and confusing. It's like, what happened? Did he just sort of like... Was it like his um, uh, some version of public suicide when he stood up on the stage and endorsed Donald Trump, and now there's just like a shell left or something? I don't know, but um, yeah. it's yeah, that's definitely who knows what's going on in their brains. Definitely, probably not much. Well, thank, 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 thank you, Debbie, for calling in, even though you had only a few minutes. Hopefully you'll be able to catch the rest of it later because I'm going to go on to other types of schisms you might find interesting. So thank you, and Will you have do. a good day. Good okay. talk to you. Yeah, you Bye-bye. Too. Okay, so let me go back over to the articles that I was talking about here. So first of all, how a secret Freedom Caucus pact brought down the Obamacare repeal is an article from Politico. And essentially what the House Freedom Caucus did is they met and they asked all the members to not pledge their vote one way or the other about anything until they had all met and agreed on a particular strategy. So it was a very simple strategy that they had. Um, It says in a conference room in the Rayburn House office building, the group met one evening. They made a secret pact. No member would commit his vote before consulting with the entire group, not even if Trump himself called to ask for an on-the-spot commitment. So, smart strategy. And then they talk about how what it is that they have to do. Now, Mark Meadows, who's the leader, he says, I don't think there's a more critical vote for the Freedom Caucus than this. And I, I believe that's true, right, because they have to do this right. If they're going to repeal and replace Obamacare. They need to make the right choice. They want to make sure that if they do something and it's a disaster and it's, of course, market manipulation, that it's not blamed on capitalism, all the different things. I mean, any of them that have any sort of integrity 
to the idea of limited government and individualism and the pursuit of happiness, they're concerned to get this right. Resistance, along with the objections of a handful of moderates, stymied Trump and Ryan in the first major legislative gambit between the policy expert and political novice. Freedom Caucus stared down its own commander-in-chief and won, delivering a black eye to his early presidency, potentially damaging the rest of his agenda. Of course, what did Trump do? Trump tweeted against the Freedom Caucus, uh, which is not the, uh, you know, not the thing that you should be wanting to do. Now, let me skip down because I think it's in this article that they talk about the fact that some of the senators came to visit at the same time. Um, There were individual lawmakers within the Freedom Caucus that got peeled off, by the way, and one of them, unfortunately, was Bridstein from Oklahoma, which I found disappointing. Um, But yeah, the, the Freedom Caucus was standing strong, and at least they stood strong long enough to discourage Paul Ryan from bringing it to the floor for a vote. So they didn't even end up bringing this. Now, it might have been interesting to go ahead and bring it for the vote, watch it fail, see who voted for it, and then you at least learn something about these people. But we didn't even get to learn that. Now, it says the members were also buttressed by outside forces. Senator Rand Paul repeatedly showed up to Freedom Caucus meetings to remind members that they could take down the bill if they stuck together. And there's some hay being made in the article about how they – you know, were hypocrites in a certain way because they had pledged not to listen to Republican leadership and yet they pledged to stick together on this. So isn't that just as, you know, collectivist as not stick? No, um, they're sticking together in a limited way for in service of a certain principle, uh, not, you know, and they're rejecting the lockstep behind the GOP leadership, which they have good reason. You know, supposedly this small band of Freedom Caucus members, what is it, like three dozen or something, they stand on the principles of limited government on which our country was founded. Uh, So I don't see it as hypocritical at all that they realize that if they stick together, they can defeat a horrible piece of legislation. Now, here's the disappointment, right? So I said, Rand Paul, he came there and he told them, look, if you stick together, if you say you're going to vote no on Obamacare, like you can defeat it. Now, listen to what this political article says about Cruz. Senator Ted Cruz met privately with caucus members to explain his issues with the bill, though he stopped short of telling them how to vote, sources said. Now, why did he stop short of that? Is it some sort of integrity? Like He wants them to think for themselves and he's above it? Uh, I would say that if you also think that they should vote a certain way, you explain it. You, I mean, obviously you can't force them, but why not tell them how they should vote if you have an idea of how they should vote? I find this disappointing. Senator Mike Lee, the article goes on to say, called at least a dozen conservative House members before the plan vote to urge them to hold firm. So Mike Lee, Rand Paul, both urging members of the Freedom Caucus to hold firm. About 28 of them apparently did. And that's that. 
Now, in the chat room, they're talking about the whole repeal and replace, how you get to total control, are people their brother's keeper. Craig says, Cruz wants to be reelected. Once it all becomes about being reelected and not doing the right thing, it's terrible. Just Jean says, I think Cruz is afraid to go too much against Trump because he's up for re-election next year and Trump is popular in Texas. I suppose so. I suppose that could be the reason why. You know, I, I think that this so-called schism within the GOP and the House GOP in particular is, is a really good thing, right? You have the Freedom Caucus actually saying that, look, as a Republican Party, if we're going to put our name on a piece of legislation, Republican, it should actually be something that resembles a limited government approach to health care. There is no use tinkering at the margins and then saying that you've somehow repealed and replaced Obamacare. And these guys seem like the only ones that will stand up for it. Now, it, when I'm reading the other articles about what's going on now, they themselves are becoming divided. And that's the thing to me that is alarming. Another Politico article, this one was just published yesterday in the afternoon, Freedom Caucus divided on tool to force Obamacare repeal vote. So the question is now, where do they go from here? There has been some discussion of why not just pass a repeal, just repeal Obamacare first, and then do a separate piece of legislation replacing it. Now, you and I know what would happen, which would be they'd repeal it, and then they would never be able to agree on a replacement. And it looks like there's nobody in the Senate who would, or not nobody, but there wouldn't be enough votes in the Senate for something like that. They'd all be scared that it's not replaced. All of the Republicans have now, particularly the Senate Republicans, have become complacent that we need certain elements of Obamacare, again, despite the fact that Von Mises could come to them or a Von Mises disciple could come to them all day long and draw all sorts of graphs and show on charts and everything how it is destroying the healthcare system. It's destroying the economy. It's going to lead us straight to socialized medicine, which if you ask them, do you want socialized medicine? They'd say no, even though that's true. They are somehow hoping that they can wish it and make it so that somehow the constellation of interventions in the economy that they're going to put into Trump care, that's going to defy the laws of economics. It is ridiculous. But in any event, there's this division because there's a number of the House Freedom Caucus people who think that they can force a vote on a straight repeal. And I would say it's worth doing. I mean, how many times did they do it when they did not have a Republican president? I would like to see these guys on record either voting for a straight repeal or not. And then we know who are the people who really mean what they've said in the past. How many of them voted for the straight repeal in the past, but only because they were trying to get elected by the core, right? And they knew that it was never going to be signed into law because Obama was president. How many of them would reveal themselves? And that's the thing. I mean, Paul Ryan wouldn't even let that other one come for a vote. Nobody was going to have to be on the record of supporting it or not supporting it one way or the other. They're all hiding. They don't want to stand for anything. And to the extent that there are people still with integrity 
in the House Freedom Caucus who can't be peeled away because Trump makes a deal with them and promises some goodies for their district at home, which is, if you read some of these articles, that's what happened with some of them that got peeled off. They were all offered little special goodies and deals, some pork for their district. To the extent that we have anybody in the House Freedom Caucus with integrity who stands for the principles on which our country was founded, individual rights, right to the pursuit of your own happiness, which implies a capitalist economy, right? Limited government, government that does not initiate force against its citizens. Yeah. When they're talking about the schism in the, in the chat room here, Craig says Republicans were the statist anti-freedom part of the schism. And that's what we have. We've got an anti-freedom Republican party. And again, Ted Cruz, why in the world did you not urge voting? I mean, imagine right now, again, like I say, these articles are sort of implying that the House Freedom Caucus might be suffering from its own internal schism, whether they're willing to push a vote on an actual repeal of Obamacare, just as an exercise, even if Trump will never sign it, I'd like to see it. I'd like to see it when they think there's actually a chance that Trump would sign it. But I think they, don't, they wouldn't dare. And, and who, who will go on record? saying that I actually believe in the principle of individual rights in United States in 21st century. Not that many people in the Republican Party, apparently, and maybe not even that many people in the Freedom Caucus. They're not willing to use tools. You know, they have little special tools, procedural tools that they can use. Democrats, they pulled out every procedural tool that they could. In fact, they ended up passing something that if it had been billed as a tax, when they were going through all their procedural hoops, it couldn't have been passed according to procedure. And yet then later it was upheld as a tax in the Supreme Court. And these Republicans, they think they're principled and then they think they're not going to fight the way that the, the Democrats have. Again, healthcare has gone from consuming one-sixth of the economy to nearly one-fifth. According to New York Times in an article yesterday, and it's just going to get worse, and it's going to be on the heads of our government. Now, if you go to my blog at don'tletitgo.com or if you follow me on Twitter, you'll see I tweeted out yesterday something that occurred to me. Again, this occurred to me while I was teaching my libertarian theories of the law class. I was reading an article from that. And it is um, – sorry, let me get back over to my blog. Okay. It was a um, – a quotation from a French libertarian philosopher. And, oh, yeah, actually, I don't have the, the quotation up here, but De Juvenel is his, his name. And I was reading in there from De Juvenel, and actually I didn't share this particular quotation. He was talking about that once the government takes over a particular sector, what sometimes happens is that those people who are in power end up, trying to exempt themselves from the application of the laws that they pass, right? And I'm not even closely paraphrasing it, but that's what he was talking about. And of course, it called to my mind that one of the things that the Republicans were doing at the time that Obamacare was up for passage was they were saying, okay, let's at least put a provision in it that makes sure 
that the members of Congress are subject to Obamacare, that they themselves are subject to the so-called Affordable Care Act. And as you know, Congress, Congress, uh, congressmen and women, they are exempt from it. They are exempt from it. And so what I'm saying is, hey, you know, you've got a GOP majority in the House. You've got a GOP majority in the Senate. You've got a Republican president. Why not? You know, if you're if you're not going to be able to repeal Obamacare, maybe what the, these guys should do, right? Maybe what this House Freedom Caucus should do is use that procedural tool, not necessarily to force a vote on a straight repeal if they know for sure it's going to fail, but why not just go ahead as to make a point, why not force a vote on a bill that would make all congressmen subject to Obamacare, make Obamacare actually apply to them, make them have to be part of Obamacare and suffer all of the reduction of choice, the higher deductibles, the increase in cost that all of us have had to endure. Why not do it? Now, a friend of mine, when I posted this, he says, he says it's true Isonomia is what he posted. And I read it as insomnia. I said, what are you talking about, amnesia? Because I was thinking about the fact that most people had forgotten that the Republicans were trying to do this, that the Republicans, as a bargaining chip, maybe they weren't even serious then, right? But they were trying to say, look, let's at least make it apply to all of us. And maybe they were hoping it would sink Obamacare. But now I'm not hearing this from any of them. I'd like to see it happen. Freedom Breeze in the chat room says, yeah, Canadian politicians go to the Mayo Clinic. And Yaron was talking the other day about the fact that the life expectancy in Canada, why is it so good? It's good because um, the Canadians, if they're really sick, they can come to the U.S. because they're so close and they can get health care here. But what happens when, not if, when our health care system is destroyed? Where are you going to go to get quality Healthcare in the world at a reasonable price? I really don't know. So um, if you want to give me a retweet out there, if you want to go onto Twitter and retweet my little tweet about at the very least, if the GOP fails to repeal Obamacare, they should make members of Congress subject to it. Go ahead and tag Ted Cruz when you retweet it, quote tweet it or something. Actually, don't maybe don't bother tagging Ted Cruz. Maybe tag Justin Amash or Senator Rand Paul or Mike Lee because... I don't know what's going on with Ted Cruz. I'm I'm finding him disappointing, unfortunately. Anyway, Americans can go to Mexico, said Craig. Yeah, I've heard that there is, at least in some types of treatment, like, for instance, that you can get cancer treatment in Mexico that you're not able to get here because the FDA has been withholding approval and, and that sort of thing, so... So like I said, go to the blog, don'tletitgo.com. You can read all of this. But my take on the schism is, hey, you know, if you tell the House Freedom Caucus, look, you've caused a schism in the GOP and you should be for unity and you should be for passing this piece of legislation. You know, we need to repeal Obamacare no matter what we replace it with. And when the House Freedom Caucus, insofar as the members do actually have integrity, they stand firm and they say, no, Obamacare light is not anything that I want my name on, good for them. You know, if, if there's a schism because of standing up for a principle, then yeah, be part of that. Say, yeah, I caused a schism. I'm proud of it. I'm on this side of it. 
And if you don't like it, I'm sorry, but I think this is what's true. So let's go on to what really shouldn't even be a part of the discussion anymore. I, I can't figure out exactly how this started to be discussed again. The only thing I can think of is that in a episode of a, a little BBC show called Witness, it's a little podcast, in an episode of that, they interviewed Leonard Peikoff and it's the you know 60th anniversary of Atlas Shrugged. And they said, okay, you know, we're going to interview him. And in that, Leonard mentioned that Ayn Rand used the name objectivism to refer to her philosophy. And I'm not sure if that's what did it, but concurrently with this being spread around Facebook, there's been a revival of the debate about objectivism being an open versus a closed system. And what is it that you should be able to call objectivism versus not? Um, now, again, yeah, the chat room, people aren't starting on this one. Um, Oh, Robert in the chat room says, it's Jim Brown's fault. He's looking to broaden ARI the same way Yaron did back when he started there. Well, I don't know what you mean by broaden, and that's what we'd have to be precise about. Um, Waldo in the chat room says that Ayn Rand originally considered the name existentialism, but the name was already in use. Okay, so, so here's the thing. One thing that I had heard from somebody, and let, let me tell you, there's a, there's a person who wrote a blog post about this open-closed debate and very loudly you know, announced that he's leaving organized objectivism over this issue of the open and closed debate is... Object And some people who are listening right now, you're thinking, what in the world are you talking about? Okay, so philosophy, Ayn Rand named her philosophy objectivism, and she referred to by the name objectivism all of her writings on philosophy, right? That, that was the title, the name that she gave to her philosophy. And actually, if we want to be really precise, then we'll go, I mean, there's, you know, a statement of it in the objectivist newsletter back from 1968, but then Leonard Peikoff also talks about it in fact and value, which I've linked to on my blog. And then I also, in his introduction to OPAR, he makes the distinction clear. Now, OPAR, uh, objectivism, the philosophy of Ayn Rand, I've got an acronym for it, OPAR. A lot of people refer to it by OPAR, but maybe you don't know that. This book is a hierarchical presentation of Rand's philosophy. So what he did is based on all of his study with Ayn Rand, 30 years studying under Ayn Rand, he wrote this hierarchical presentation of her philosophy. And he says because of his, you know, 30 years of study under her, and because of her own statement, he says he's the person next to Ayn Rand who is the most qualified to write this book, this entire hierarchical presentation. The closest that Rand got is Galt's speech in Atlas Shrugged. Now, let me read you the statement that Rand made, because um, Leonard Peikoff delivered a course called Philosophy of Objectivism, which itself you know, presented the whole philosophy, but it did, um, it did not you know, do as good a job as, as you've got here in front of you with OPAR. Now, here's what Rand said about it, about his course on which this book was based. She said, until or unless I write a comprehensive treatise on my philosophy, 
Dr. Peikoff's course is the only authorized presentation of the entire theoretical structure of objectivism, i.e. the only one that I know of my own knowledge to be fully accurate. End quote from Ayn Rand. Okay, so that, you know, Leonard Peikoff is calling himself the intellectual heir. He is the only one who ever, you know, or not only whoever, but who by the end of Rand's life had given an authorized presentation of the entire theoretical structure. Earlier, Nathaniel Brandon had given some presentations of the philosophy, but she had said there were some problems with it. Now, she authorized this. Leonard believes that in writing OPAR that he improved a lot upon it, but nonetheless, he refrains from calling his own book his own presentation of her philosophy where he actually ruthlessly kept out anything extraneous and tried to just stick to the purely philosophical issues, he nonetheless doesn't call his own book objectivism. So he says, since she did not live to see this book, she is not responsible, now I'm quoting from him, she is not responsible for any misstatements of her views it may contain, nor can the book be properly described as, quote, official objectivist doctrine, and then he says, quote, and he puts in quotations, objectivism is the name of Ayn Rand's philosophy as presented in the material she herself wrote or endorsed, end quote. And I don't have the exact statement in front of me because getting the objectivist newsletter, excuse me, it's just called the objectivist back in 68 where she said this. Um, it's not uh, available to me in print. The June 1968 actually is missing from the volume that I have. But she had said in one of these that she would actually pursue all appropriate action against anybody else who tried to present as objectivism something that she hadn't authorized. Okay, so this is consonant with the views that she herself expressed about what she desired to be called objectivism. She desired to have, under the name objectivism, her philosophy as presented in the material she herself wrote or endorsed. Now, then the question is, is she entitled to ask for that? Is she entitled to ask for that? And I would say, yes, she is. But let's, let's talk about the issue, right? So the, so the issue is, here's Rand. Rand is presenting a philosophy, a philosophy is not the same as a novel. Um, in a philosophy, what she's doing is she is identifying truths about, you could say the universe as the whole, the nature of man, the nature of the relationship between man and the universe. It is identifying truths. Now she's, so it's not exactly the same as a novel, right? Because a novel is a work of fiction. This is a work of nonfiction that she has. Now she says, all of the formulations and identifications that I made about this philosophy, I desire for those to be called objectivism, and I don't want anybody else presenting under the name of objectivism some set of ideas that isn't authorized by me. She's the one who first identified and formulated this. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, you say, okay, well, all knowledge is, in effect, open-ended, in the sense that we could discover, and you know, this is hypothetical, you'd have to give me an example uh, of where it happened, but suppose you thought, okay, there's a big hole in 
Ayn Rand system. There is a fundamental question of philosophy that she didn't address. Or suppose you thought, okay, well, she was very logical. She purports to, um, you know, she purports to have tested everything for consistency within her system and, you know, been very rigorous about it, checked her premises, so to speak, but there's actually something inconsistent in her system. There's something that's wrong within her fundamental philosophical system. Suppose there's something wrong, there's something missing. Uh, Nonetheless, right, suppose in the future you discover this. Should you call that objectivism, or should you name as objectivism whatever that system of philosophy is that you are presenting now, which includes everything that she did, but either corrected or augmented or whatever. And I would say no, even though this is an issue of truth and falsity. And I would say it on the order of like, and this is the thing, you can't copyright a philosophy, right? You can't copyright a philosophy. It's not the same as a novel, but what I, what you could do is you could do something analogous to a patent, right? And what I think that if you truly believe that Ayn Rand provided to you a value in the identification and the formulation of this revolutionary fundamental philosophy, which if you look at David Kelly's, you know, David Kelly's writings, he talks about how revolutionary she is. She's got this whole system. It's never been done before. If you truly believe that, then don't you think that you would owe the woman who did this the courtesy of differentiating what you have contributed to what you see as the overall consistency. You can disagree with her. I have no problem disagreeing with her. You think, okay, I'm going to add to this. Now, I may actually think you're crazy. You know, I might, you think you're adding to it or you think she's inconsistent about this uh, fundamental issue within philosophy, but I think you're wrong. But you can do it. But disagree respectfully. And I think disagreeing with Rand respectfully includes respecting her wishes about what you call your intellectual contribution to what you see as this body of work, this philosophy, right? Now, if you go into fact and value, which I hadn't looked at for quite a long time, um, when Leonard Peikoff is talking about this, he's not talking about augmenting the philosophy he is talking about contradicting it that if you somehow contradicted one of the fundamentals that you could not call that objectivism um, he didn't talk about in in fact and value about augmenting but i would say suppose you thought that there's a hole in the philosophy and you think that that hole can be filled in a way that doesn't contradict the total. And you can prove to me that really, you know, if she wanted to have a complete and total system that covered all the basic issues in philosophy, she should have included X. Suppose you're right. Nonetheless, if you respect this woman and what she has done for philosophy and for your life in particular and for your ability to enjoy life on this planet, then you owe this woman the courtesy of distinguishing what it was that she identified and formulated and what you identified and formulated. And I would say you would owe that to her at least as long as it is possible to sow confusion in people's minds about what is hers and what is yours. 
Now, I would say that if you're the innovator, you would want to proudly say, well, look, she left this out and then here's my contribution and call it objectivism prime or whatever names people have been hypothesizing out, out there. But I do think this is a moral issue. Now, I have seen on the wall of this guy who wrote this blog post, who I'm not naming, um, I'm, I'm not naming him. Um, I, I've seen on the wall of this guy, he says, oh, well, all, be, all that people can bring up is moral arguments. Okay, first of all, there's two things. First of all is that the philosophy covers, as far as we know, all of the basic fundamental issues. So if you're going to do something that changes it in any significant way, then you are contradicting it and you're not entitled to call it objectivism forever. Um, suppose you are going to add to it, like I said, my hypothetical about the whole, you tell me about a whole, we could debate about it. I'm not an expert epistemologist or this or that, but I'm, you know, giving you, if there's a whole, morally speaking, morally speaking, you should nonetheless distinguish what is hers and what is yours, um, that you owe her that. And that the moral issue is not a trivial issue. This is not just, quote, some dead woman. I think I saw that in one of the comments before. This is Ayn Rand, who is the revolutionary philosopher who formulated this philosophy, created this entire system, and asked that it be called objectivism and that nothing be referred to as objectivism unless it was part of this system. Um, it is not just a discovery. People talk about, oh, it's, oh, it's a discovery. It, it's not just the discovery. It is an identification and a formulation. And, you know, you can't say, okay, for all time. Suppose, suppose later, much later, you have come up with the new total system that has this missing piece that Ayn Rand missed and you know, rack your brains as you could to come up with a different name. It just so happens that even though Rand was missing this essential piece that you had to insert in it, uh, even so, the total, the total objectively should still be called objectivism, that that is still the fundamental thing that makes it what it is and differentiates it from all the other philosophies in history. Suppose that's the truth, that it still should be called objectivism, even with the added piece and stuff. I nonetheless say that even though that would be the truth about what this is best called, that you owe Ayn Rand the courtesy of giving her the credit or the blame or whatever it is for her portion of that total. And then you, you know, call whatever for, for so long as there's possible confusion about who's the author and, and how is, how long is that true? I would say at least until the philosophy becomes really ma mainstream. Right. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of people who don't even know a lot of the technicalities of Aristotle's view. So you could say, OK, well, something is loosely Aristotelian, but it's different. Right. Because here's Rand. Rand did not call her philosophy Randism or whatever. Um, and in a way, it's ironic because she's not this megalomaniac naming her philosophy after her own. I don't think Aristotle did to him either. Right. But. Maybe later, you know, you want to say, okay, well, it's kind of Rand is it's in the tradition of Rand or whatever later. Um, that would be something that wouldn't be distorting. Rand says, well, don't call my philosophy Randism. I want to call it objectivism according to what it is. And then your solution is, well, because she didn't put her name all over it like a megalomaniac, 
then you're going to accuse her of being a megalomaniac when she asks you the courtesy of identifying under the term objectivism what she actually identified and formulated. That somehow, you know, she's trying to dictate how everybody lives their lives from the grave. Um, one, some people might say, well, in order to, you know, actually spread objectivism and save the country, you need to include in it X, Y, Z things in order to make it more palatable to everybody. Like suppose you say, and I, I disagree with this, we have to include a virtue of tolerance in here in order to save the country. Suppose that was true. Okay. You go ahead, you try to include your virtue of tolerance in your new system of philosophy and save the country if you think that that's going to do it. But again, if you truly think that you owe an intellectual debt to Ayn Rand, can't you at least give her the courtesy of calling her identifications and and, uh, formulations by the name that she asked? Can't she have that? That's really... The, my, my basic argument. Now, if people, I know some people want to call in and talk about this, but I don't see anybody on the line who's actually pressed one. 760-888-5817 is the number to call. And tell me if I'm, I'm missing something about this, because on the one hand, yes, I agree that philosophy is something, the study of philosophy is going to go on forever. Uh, you could say that Ayn Rand's philosophy is different from prior philosophies because she's actually identifying the truth. But as I said, I see it as analogous sort of to a patent, that there's certain things that you owe to somebody who not just discovered, but identified and formulated and made useful to human beings the truths about philosophy that she did. And it's, you know, she, she gave that the name, and it's, it's not dogmatism, right? I'm not saying... Oh, you can't disagree with it. In fact, some people take me as having disagreed with Rand in some really basic way because I'm in favor of gay marriage. Now, as Leonard Peikoff is, you know, uh, eager to point out either on this podcast or in his writings, applications of the philosophy to evaluating people or evaluating various policies and stuff. Objectivists can disagree on those all the time, and there should be no, quote, excommunications based on applications and evaluations. When you say that something is not part of objectivism, it's because it contradicts fundamentals. And he thought that this issue of whether the system is open or closed and evaluating what, what somebody does when they try to call something objectivism that isn't, that that is a fundamental issue. Uh, what I'd urge you to do is read Fact and Value. I've put the link uh, in my program notes at don'tletitgo.com, but if you just Google Fact and Value Peak Off, you'll find it. They have it for free on the einrand.org website, the whole essay. When he's talking about the discussion of the closed system, you'll note that when Leonard Peikoff is talking about the betrayal that would take place if you contradicted the system, he's not talking about additions. The idea of adding something both fundamental and consistent is not addressed in this piece as I read it. Tell me I'm missing something, but I don't see it. What I just did is I gave you my take on what I would do if I saw something that was fundamental and yet not addressed, it needed to be part of the fundamental system of philosophy, I would still not call that objectivism out of courtesy for her. 
That's really the way I would do it. Now, what are they doing? Uh, Quinn in the chat room, he says, if objectivism can be developed with former Aristotelian logic, RAND plus development can still equal objectivism, but credits should still be attributed to the respective developers. Yeah, I would, I would still hesitate to use the word objectivism to an entire, I mean, you know, this is all hypothetical, but suppose that was true. I, I wouldn't use it to describe that whole system. Because, you know, again, at least as long as there could be confusion about what was hers and what was anybody else's. If objectivism becomes so commonplace that everybody knows what was hers and then when somebody talks about something else being part of objectivism that they would know it, it all depends on the context. But so long as the context is like it is today, such that if people go around calling objectivism something that was not in that body of identifications and evaluations that she named I I wouldn't out of respect for her I value what she did and I would adhere to her wishes thanks Michael for putting the link there in the chat room let me see if I've got anybody on the line who said that they do want to talk yeah I do have one let's see who's here hi you're on the air who's this hello Hello? oh uh, I'm I'm, I'm, on Yes. Hi. Hello. Uh, hi. Hello. Yeah. Um, hi. Uh, this is Arjun from Hong Kong. Hi. Thanks for calling again. How are you? Uh, I'm fine. Yeah. Um, so I think off the bat, um, um, I think that, um, so is it platonic in a sense, this um, thing? Because uh, if you think about it, they're almost, it's almost like this. They're thinking like, you know, assuming Rand was wrong about any, about something like, as you said, um, hypothetically, um, <laughs> They're thinking about like a certain uh, form in another world that's actually objectivism, and then all of them can add on to it rather than the actual objectivism that was found by Ayn Rand. That was sorry, that was formulated by Ayn Rand. You see what I'm saying? Or... Right now, you know, as I understand it, Kelly thinks that there, you know, Rand left out certain things, and so therefore there are, are holes that need to be filled. But what I'm saying is that even if you think you've discovered that there is some essential hole that would be filled, you know, with regard to the philosophy, then, you know, I mean, this is what Leonard, you know, objectivism, it's the name of no, Ayn Rand's achievement, right? This is what exactly. she named. So that, yeah, exactly. Because, so, but the only way that you could avoid that is if you made like a universal form distinct from the actual philosophy itself, like in another world, then you say, Oh, you know, we're discovering different pieces of it in this world. I don't, I don't, so, I don't know that it has to be in another world. It may, you know, and again, actually, I shouldn't even say this, right? Um, because I'm not, I'm not going to say it may very well be that Ayn Rand was wrong on a fundamental issue. I'm not going to say that. Why? Because it would be arbitrary to do so. I am not aware of Rand being wrong on any fundamental issue, right? None of these things about hair color or whether you like architecture or which music or I have a ring in my nose, you know, a lot of people are scandalized or whatever. None of this is part of philosophy. Um, So the philosophy is the fundamental system. And, you know, Leonard Peikoff has extensive podcasts talking about how you evaluate whether particular people are objectivists, whether certain ideas, you can have these disagreements about this and still both be objectivists and all this kind of stuff. Right. Um, Those aren't the issues. 
what what they're talking about here is that you're actually going to add something to the philosophy that something that is or maybe you're going to you know change something now in fact and value leonard says definitively and I, i think that's right that if you actually changed something at a fundamental level within the philosophy then no. And what he's asserting here is that some of the positions that Kelly has actually contradicts Rand's understanding of the mind-body dichotomy, right? So there's that kind of Yeah, like the lack of culpability for moral positions. Um, right. As exactly. long as their ideas, I think that's exactly. Actually, and w- while I think of this, because it's I, it's cur- occurred to me twice, let me just put it in there. It's it's a little bit out of order. Um, the person who wrote this essay and said, I'm leaving organized objectivism. Let me just give you an example that I think is completely consistent with the type of attitude he has toward Ayn Rand wanting to have her system called objectivism. Um, I went over to this person's uh, page on, on Facebook and saw a quotation from Ayn Rand. And it's the one about the thing that's the hardest to see is the glaringly evident one that nobody wants to name. Right. Um, so, that yeah, I quote, yeah, so that quotation was quoted out by something called the Ayn Rand bot, which is an account that I created on Twitter. It was quoted out yesterday, I believe, or maybe no, late, late the day before yesterday. Yeah, day before yesterday. Anyway, so what this guy does is he cuts the quotation from the Ayn Rand bot and pastes it into his own Facebook post without giving a hat tip to the fact that, oh, that it was the Iron Man bot. Yeah. So, so you know, okay. typically if somebody gives me an article or I see a quotation or whatever, I'll either share it directly from that page or maybe what I'll do is I'll go ahead and share a link to the article, but then I'll put a hat tip at least in a comment or something. No hat tip, no nothing. And, you know, certainly this particular quotation struck him as valuable for making his point, whatever it was. Um, but he couldn't be bothered to give credit for the fact that I created this Ayn Rand bot that put the quote in front of him on that particular day when he found it valuable for whatever. And, you know, it takes a lot less time to just hit share than it does to do the whole cut and paste and everything else, right? But he decided to do that. It just shows you the contempt he has for giving credit to somebody for providing him with a value. And it's completely consistent with his position about how it's dogmatic to ask for people to refer to as objectivism, Rand's identification and formulation of fundamental philosophical truths, which is what she's asked and which I think is what she's owed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it's totally opposite to the kind of position that, um, Dr. Peacock has shown in the past, for example, uh, in his course on history of philosophy, he's very meticulously uh, fair to all these horrible philosophers because you can't attack a position unless you're accurate about it. I mean, you have to be fair in any intellectual discussion. You can't be unfair and expect to be right um, or, um, you know, expect to be uh, accepted. No, and then then here's another point, right? You know, in in the debate between... um, you know, David Kelly and, and Larry Peikoff, David Kelly talks about the fact, well, you can learn something from these Marxists or whoever. The fact that you can learn something from somebody, from encountering them or encountering what they say in their ideas, does not make them good, <laughs> right? Um, 
you could say, well, yeah, okay, well, at least I learned, right, uh, something from the person. Okay, sure, but that does not mean that therefore you should evaluate that person positively because you learned something from them. I learned lessons from horrible people all day long, and that doesn't make them good people, right? Yeah, uh, oh, that that brings me to a slightly, I don't know, more um, perhaps a particular point, but there's a lot mm-hmm. of people I respect who are amicable with um, the, uh, I don't know, what do we call them, Atlas Society folks, or um, open, mm-hmm. open, uh, in open air quotes, so I don't know how that works. I mean, I don't, I don't see how you could be friends uh, with them, but I see, but many people I respect are clearly amicable with them, so. Uh, well, okay, so, so my, my policy for my, really my, myself is, my policy myself, I mean, first of all, I was married to Leonard Peikoff. I'm still friendly with him. I, tolerate, you know, if you want to put in quotes, on social media, people who disagree with Leonard on things or disagree with me on all sorts of things. I mean, I've got social Democrats, as they call themselves on my Facebook and stuff. I'll tolerate. When, when, when people are nasty and snide about their disagreement with people, I, you know, that I value, I'm going to unfriend them. Whatever. It's my page on Facebook. It's life is too short. So as it stands, yeah, sometimes, again, the fact that I can gain knowledge by seeing stuff that I disagree with doesn't necessarily mean I think they're the greatest people. But the fact that I'm friends with them on Facebook is not all that meaningful either. Friends on Facebook basically means they follow you and they're exposed to your ideas. So we're exchanging ideas. Um, There is no premise on Facebook that everybody who's friends with everybody else agrees with everything, everybody else on every point. Um, you know, there, I don't think anybody has that assumption or delusion. So what I do is if I, you know, and again, all these different kind of iterations through these schisms, it'll bring out things about people. So, you know, I was friends with this person, whoever, I didn't know anything about him. And then suddenly he's saying yucky things about Leonard. Okay. Gone. You know, as as and when I encounter it, I do something about it. As and when, okay, yeah, that that, that certainly seems to be reasonable. You can't be, it can't be held against you if it hasn't come up yet. Obviously, like well, I guess if you're over, you can't, Bernie you can't Andrews, spend your whole life, you can't spend your whole life searching for this garbage. You know, I don't go around like, trying like to pick fights were... with people. It, it it hits me on the head, right? And this week, it just happened to be there's a schism within the Republican Party too. Perfect show title, got it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Um, I don't I've, know got, why I've got another call, Arjun. I've got another call, and who knows, it yeah. might be somebody who disagrees, so I want to give them at least a couple of minutes, okay? So um, we'll see how it goes. Thank you for calling in again, and I would love to definitely talk to you on a future show. Yeah. Hi, you're on the air. Who's this? Amy, this is Robert Hester calling from Michigan. Hi, how are, how are you? you doing did, I miss, did I miss something in my presentation of the issue? You did not miss anything in your presentation of the issue, but you skipped over the first step which I would say I could give you in 10 or 20 words or less, which is this is a really simple issue. If you mm. agree ahead of time how you are going to use the word objectivism, the problem dissolves. It just goes away. And so but it's some, obvious but the some, problem is But some people what is still ob- disagree with that, right? Some people still insist that they should be able to refer to by obje- the name objectivism this. Yep. And, and, and the, the person who I'm not naming I remember seeing on some post before I unfriended him something about like 
this and this about a dead woman, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yep. you are an ASS, you know, whatever. He is, and he is. And, and the worst thing is he keeps coming back after saying he's done. But what's clear to me is that on the epistemological level, you just you walk into a room, you say, hey, I'm giving a presentation on objectivism. There's some controversy on this. By objectivism, I mean Ayn Rand's philosophy. You walk into another room and say, hey, I'm going to talk about something I think fits in with the school of objectivism. You mm-hmm. say ahead of time what you mean. This, this is not about definitions. It's not even really about what the word objectivism means. This is about motives. And you have yes. two different camps. So it's not open. It's not closed. It's what are the motives of the people on either side of this? And that's why it's a mess. But, but if people would acknowledge up front, hey, I got no problem because I'm smart enough to say, hey, selfishness means what most people mean by it. No, wait a minute. I'm going to talk about selfishness and tell you what's right about it. You define your terms up front. The issue goes away. The reason this issue doesn't go away is it's about motives. It's not about definitions. It's not about open. It's not about closed. Right. Now, you know, you. I think you agree with me, right, that, yes, philosophy as a discipline is open, and while it's not, I, I wouldn't actually say it's possible that somebody is going to correct or add something fundamental to objectivism. I can do the thought experiment to say that if it were the case, that somebody were able to correct Ayn Rand or plug some fundamental hole in her system of thought, it might be, if that were the case, again, this is all hypothetical because I don't even think it's possible because I'm not aware of a shred of evidence that there's something fundamental missing in her work. But if it were, right, and if you, you, know, you rack your brains and objectively the best thing to call this new true system is objectivism, Nonetheless, I would say you owe it as a courtesy to this woman on whose shoulders you stand, right, to just call objectivism the stuff that she did and, and point out what you added to it. And See, I would, go, I would go a step further and say it's possible nobody will find anything wrong she did. But I'll tell you, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, they're going to talk about objectivism like philosophy the same way we don't say hey, I'm going to take Euclidean geometry. You just say, I'm going to take geometry. When right. you study philosophy, you're going to be studying Ayn Rand's ideas because they're going to turn out to be the ones that sustain. So I, I can have some only sympathy hope, for that I idea. I can only hope that you're right about that, Robert. Um, so that's why it, it really is a spiritual matter. Um, I, I have that same feeling about Ayn Rand you did. I use the word objectivism as a proper noun. But I'm not prepared to say offhand that somebody who doesn't is necessarily corrupt. It just it seems for that same spiritual reason that the more corrupt ones tend to be on that side of the debate. But I don't think that's the debate. I don't think it's open. I don't think it's closed. I do understand and I sympathize with your, your spiritual debt to Ayn Rand because I feel the same thing. But I don't think it's an epistemological question. I don't think it's an open and shut case. It really does come down to motives. You, you can see that because, again, otherwise people would just agree up front, okay, that's how you're using the word. I'm smart enough to do that. I can follow you. But they don't. Right. Now, now people, I would, I would say, though, I would say, motive. I, would, I would say, though, right, about this issue of open versus closed, that what you'd have to do for me to say that it would be open 
is give me something non-arbitrary as a possibility that there's something fundamental that she left out and didn't handle in her philosophy. I can see that, but again, I have no problem. Do you, do you see saying, what I mean? Oh, you, no, but do you, do you see what I mean? It's a, because it, to, to even say that it's open oh, sure. to say that, that you have an idea that there's something. Now, I think Kelly purports to, you know, say in his book that there's some, something that she left out. But then the question is, do you accept that? That's, but there, there's, a, well, there's an but, intellectual but commitment could. in saying that it's open. Otherwise, I, I think to say it's open is an arbitrary assertion. I think I think I could do that. I think I, there are a couple issues in which I could say I'm not saying Ayn Rand was wrong, but here's some things where there is room to question. Oh, you know what? Um, I've, yeah. I've I've only got Robert. I've only got 90 seconds, so I do have to go. So if okay. we continue, well, the, if we yeah, if we continue this discussion, we're going to have to go over to DontLetItGo.com. Thank you for calling, Robert. Uh, everybody, I do have other program notes that are worth checking out over there. Feel free, like I said, to continue the discussion there. I'm not going to talk about schisms endlessly on this show because it's just not a good use of our time. We're going to continue to, uh, I mean, I'll talk about the Republican schism. This affects the the future of our country. Uh, But like I said, yeah, if the schism fits where it, if you believe that you are on the right side of it, I think you should go ahead and, and just go ahead and do your thing and fight the good fight and continue on. Thanks for listening, everybody. Take care. I'll talk to you again next week same time, 3 p.m. Eastern time on Wednesday.